Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 60. So here we are, made it to 60 episodes. Glad to be back on the program with you. I just want to remind you, if you do enjoy this podcast and anything else that I do, please share it around on social media. That's the only way I'm going to help, or the only way you can help me expand my audience. Uh, also, like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube page. All these podcasts do get posted on YouTube, uh, so you can follow them out there. And anything else that I might do, uh, video-wise, I uh, might show up on my YouTube page. So uh, check that out. Um, also, if you haven't done so, sign up for my free email uh, which I send out uh, usually at least once a week. Um, sometimes I try to do it more, but uh, you get a free ebook out of it and a free audiobook of Forgotten Founders. So that's highly worth it. Okay, well, episode 60 is something that I th- it's a little different from what I've done before because I'm not going to focus on U.S. history per se, but it is going to factor into U.S. history. So what I want to talk about in this episode is the idea of uh, the state and what size of a state is best suited for participatory government. And where does this idea of local self-government come from? We often talk about this. Well, we're going to have our participation in government. Uh, We need to be involved. We need to be active citizens and uh, doing things to help uh, control the people that govern us. Uh, of course, we put them there. As Jefferson said in the Declaration of Independence, legislative power is incapable of annihilation. Well, why is that? Because we have legislative power. If the governor of your state or the president of the United States was to somehow usurp power and say the legislature is no longer meeting, uh, that doesn't matter because Jefferson said you cannot destroy legislative power. Uh, it, re- it goes back to the people at large for their exercise. And the example of that would be, of course, when uh, the Virginia royal governor dissolved the House of Burgesses and they met at uh, Raleigh Tavern in Williamsburg and simply conducted business there. They may not have been able to meet in their um, legislative hall, but they met where they could, and, of course, they uh, conducted their business. So uh, I think that's something that's very important to understand. You know, the Congress... No matter what level, if you're talking about the the uh, federal government, or you're talking, or which is more accurately the general government, or if you're talking at the state level, where you have your Congress, they are our representatives. But legislative power, if they don't exist, we still have it. So that's an important theme to understand in American government. And I, and I talked about this a little bit uh, in the podcast. I grant you the power, uh, because that idea of granting power, a granted power, can be rescinded by those granting the power. And so uh, if you look at the 
Constitution, you have the Congress, which has uh, granted powers. Well, who's doing the granting? The people of the states. And so they can always resume those powers if they deem it necessary to do so. Not the people in the aggregate, not one people in America. We don't have that. We had the people of the states, um, which were represented through uh, state ratifying conventions and, of course, within their own state legislature. So a granted power can be rescinded. You can take it back. Now, what about this idea of size? So when the United States, and, and I talked about this a little bit before with representation, but when the United States was, was uh, you know, founded, um, and you look at the size of these states, uh, the largest state uh, was Virginia. And, of course, you also had New York and Massachusetts and Pennsylvania as large states. But your largest city in that particular time period was Philadelphia. It had a little over 30,000 people. 30,000 people. And uh, most of your most of the area that became the United States and the states themselves was wilderness. There was nothing out there, just a bunch of trees and squirrels and birds, deer. Uh, there really wasn't anything there. You had, uh, of course, your American Indian tribes in some of these areas, but they weren't large. These tribes weren't large. So you didn't have many people around. And in the entire United States in 1790, after the first census, you had about 4 million people. 4 million people. Now, today, uh, most of your states have around that number or more. Uh, some have less, of course, but um, we're looking at states now that were the size of the entire United States in 1790. And so when the founding generation talked about local self-government, they had a real example for that because most of your, of your local areas had a couple thousand people at the most, maybe less, a few hundred people. And that was their world. And all of this actually goes back to the English political tradition. Now, when we talk about Western civilization and we start looking at where, where do our ideas of self-government come from? Well, you have to go back to the Greeks. Uh, you do have to look at their ideas on government, Athens, for example, uh, and the other Greek city-states, but Athens most importantly. The founding generation was well aware of Athens. They studied it quite a lot. They understood what Athens did. And, of course, you had the constitutions of Athens, also Sparta. Uh, you know, the, the, the constitution makers, the writers of the constitutions, were revered people because they were codifying and restricting the powers of government. And so the founders thought that that was one of the most important functions you could have in society, to be a lawgiver in that particular way, not to write laws to make sure people are doing X, Y, and Z, but to restrain the power of government. And so people wanted to be able to write these type of constitutions. And then, of course, you get forward in time, moving forward, and you have Rome, which uh, was noted for, uh, more than anything, not necessarily new ideas on, on uh, government, but they did have representative government, a republican system, early Rome, which the founding generation revered. Uh, this type of uh, republicanism that they were so fond of talking about came out of Rome and the early republic. They didn't really care much for the empire. Some did. Hamilton did. Hamilton liked Caesar. Uh, but most of the founding generation considered the early republic 
to be the, the ideal that was worth emulating. Then, of course, that falls apart in the uh, Middle Ages and then during the Viking invasions. And so they start looking at, you start looking at various regions in Europe, and one, of course, will stand out. And it's, it's to our benefit that this one area became the region that most influenced the United States, and that would be Great Britain or England. Because without the English political tradition, the United States is going to look drastically different. We live with the blessings of that English political tradition, and I think sometimes we forget that. Uh, if we had had the Spanish political tradition, for example, well, you can see what that does. Just go down to uh, Latin America, and you have strongmen, you have corruption, you have thugs running those governments. They didn't have the same type of political tradition in that area as we had here in what became the United States and the states themselves. Uh, if you look at uh, also you know, the French political tradition, look at what that did in South America. It became revolutionary and bloody, places like Haiti. Uh, so the French Revolution and that particular spirit carried over into those regions, and you had very nasty and very bloody revolutions. So we have been blessed here in the United States and the states themselves with this English political tradition that's much different. So that's when I said this particular podcast is going to take a little different angle. I'm actually going to do History 101 instead of uh, you know U.S. History 1, or which is uh, oftentimes a 200-level course in college. So I'm going to talk about uh, the English political tradition and how that influenced the United States. So you got to go back um, to Alfred the Great uh, in England. And uh, Alfred the Great ruled in the 9th century A.D. He's the first great king of Angleland. And, of course, you're talking about the Angles, which were the Germanic tribe that smashed into uh, what's now England or Great Britain. Uh, when the Roman Empire was falling apart. And so you had the Angles and you had the Saxons, and they were the two dominant uh, Germanic tribes that were able to, um, to move in England. But it's also Alfred the Great that's able to push back the Vikings, who started raiding into England as well. And um, he eventually gave them part of England, which was called the Dane Law. And... Uh, the, the Dane law was their region. Uh, and so, of course, the Danes became very powerful in places like Ireland. There's a reason that you have red-haired and blue-eyed Irish. That's not natural to Ireland. It's not native to Ireland. That's the Danes that had influence in Ireland. But Alfred did a couple of important things. Besides pushing back the Vikings, and he's often uh, you know, considered to be the founder of the English Navy, but two things that he did one, he reorganized the militia to always have men-at-arms. And this became very important. If you look at, for example, the uh, Roman constitutions or the Spartan constitutions, uh, it was the arms-bearing citizens of those two particular uh, governments that controlled the government. Men were always armed. And when you look at England this idea of self-preservation and self-protection. You didn't have a standing army because you had a militia, men who were trained at arms and ready to go defend England, in this case against the Vikings. You had a constant invader. 
and they had to be able to protect what they had, their land, their property, their farms, against these Viking invaders. And I'm going to talk about how big these areas were in a second. In the 9th century, moving forward even into the 11th century, in a couple hundred years, uh, we didn't have large cities at this time. So in these communities, you had men that were at least trained to use a sword. And of course, that's going to work to their advantage eventually because they are ready at all times then to defend against tyranny. So this idea of having a men-at-arms, a militia, always armed, always ready to defend themselves against invasion from any level, whether it was a foreign power, a Viking invasion, or whether it was the government itself infringing on their what became their rights as Englishmen, which had developed over centuries by custom and precedent. And this all begins really with Alfred the Great. So these were very independent people. And I think that's something that we have to understand. You can't have local self-government unless you have independent people. If you have dependent people, you're never going to have it because dependent people are going to want to eat at the trough. They're going to slop with the other hogs around them. They're getting the money from the general government and they're going to slop in it. And if you have independent communities... Well, you don't need that money anymore. One of the things that anyone could do is start resisting taking federal dollars because that makes you dependent on them. And then, of course, you're tied into all their rules and regulations and everything else. So these were independent people, armed citizens, ready to defend what they had, their property, their lives, against any form of invasion. That is part of the English political tradition. Now, of course, you can find that in other people as well. You can find it in some of the Germanic peoples as you move forward in time. You know, Germany was very much decentralized and had those little little kingdoms in Germany. They they had a they had the Holy Roman Empire, but they were all decentralized. But England itself, and of course, maybe you can find that you get that from these Germans that had eventually moved in and taken over England. So that's an important trend. One, a, a constant militia, <clears throat> but the other that Alfred left to his people and that of his successors was a tradition of people's participation in local government. Now, it didn't mean that you didn't have the king as lord of all of his domain, which was everything that he controlled, all of his kingdoms, whether it was Wessex or Mercia or Northumbria, Northumbria, excuse me, or uh, Essex, or East Anglia, but Mercia and Wessex were the two largest kingdoms, and Northumbria was also a large one. So uh, these are the two most powerful kingdoms, Wessex being the, the southwestern part of England, being a very important part of, uh, of England, and then Mercia, which is kind of the middle area. Uh, so you had the king controlling his areas, but then you had these, you didn't have the same type of communication And you had these very small communities that essentially ran themselves. And that's because these small communities had uh, freemen in them. And you had the county or shire sheriff. And that shire sheriff dispensed law according to local custom 
and the law of the kingdom. This is the law of the manor that becomes very important moving forward all throughout English history and then, of course, moving into the United States. So this sheriff, this is why if you look at uh, what's going on in the United States today, you have movements to eliminate elected sheriffs and just replace them with state police. Uh, so in places like Delaware, we had one of the longest, the oldest elected sheriffs in, in the United States. I believe it's been abolished, uh, and now they just have the state police, or there was an attempt to do so. I can't remember if it's been accomplished or not, but you had these elected sheriffs. And why that's important is because the sheriff dispensed the law. So if the king would pass a law or decree a law that was against local custom, well, they just ignored it. And you could even do so down to the down to the individual. If you had a an estate and you were a lord of your estate, and that law conflicted with local custom and precedent, your local custom and precedent, well, you just ignore it. That, my friends, is what we call nullification. You ignore the law if it's unconstitutional or violates local custom and precedent. So this is the English tradition, the English tradition of local self-government. And, of course, that tradition will carry forward into the United States. So I, I mentioned, uh, what about the size of these towns, these communities? Well, there's a very valuable resource online, actually. It's the Doomsday Book. It's actually Open Doomsday. It's opendoomsday.org. And this is a really cool site. If you don't know what the Doomsday Book is, the Doomsday Book was uh, written in 1086, and the idea, this was after uh, William of Normandy, William the Conqueror, uh, took over in 1066, uh, and um, wanted to understand what his tax revenue would be like, so he conducted a census. And not only in the census did they go out and count people, they also counted, you know, what kind of property these people have. And in this particular book, you have all kinds of interesting information. So you have uh, a little map that comes up when you go to Open Doomsday. And uh, you have um, little towns, and it tells you how large these towns were, what county they were in what hundred they were in. And, of course, um, when you look going forward even to American history, um, in Delaware, for example, which uh, is where I uh, consider to be my home state, uh, as, as now you know, I don't live in Delaware, but if I had said you know, where, where I grew up, uh, would be northern Virginia and then into Delaware. Delaware is broken down or was broken down into hundreds, and you had that in England. In fact, the counties of Delaware are Sussex, Kent, and Newcastle. And that comes from the southeastern part of England. And Lord De La War is where Delaware is named after. Okay, so you had this very strong English tradition there, obviously. And you had these hundreds, which is a kind of how political community was broken up. And then you had your counties. So you look at these little counties, and then you look at these hundreds, and you look at what's in them. And it lists total population. And it's not listed by individual. It's listed by households. And so, um, 
for example, the, the town I'm looking at right now is uh, <coughs> in Lincolnshire. And it has a total population of 56 households. And it's considered to be a very large community. Now, 56 households doesn't give you the, um, the idea of you know, how big this thing is. Well, uh, of these 56 households, you could say it was maybe five times that when you look at population. Maybe. So you're talking about maybe, what, uh, a little over 500 people? 500 and, uh, at the most, you know, that would be 10 times that, but maximum 500 people, more or less like around 300 people. And that's a very large town, 300 people. It, can, it included seven villagers, two small, two small holders, and 40 freemen. So I talked about that freemen, the men-at-arms. This is what was in this town. Some of them list slaves, how many slaves that they have. Um, and it tells you also who was the lord of this area. And it was Kulsvine was the lord of this particular, uh, this particular town. And so uh, this is interesting. Less than 500 people, I mean, in this case, maybe around 300 people, was a lo- very large town. Now, again, to put that in perspective, my own neighborhood has almost 80 households. So this little neighborhood that I live in would have been a very large town. 80 households. You figure you, you just multiply that. Most households now in America and the United States have about four or five people in them, maybe. Uh, and so 80 households is about 300 people. This is a very large community. But we don't think of it that way. This is just our neighborhood. But think about how important then size becomes and scale. Local self-government over 300 people is very easy. If I had, and I, you know, I know my neighbors across the street, next to me, down the road, you know these people. So if you had to actually go out <clears throat> and participate in government with these people, that's what you would have. And of course, when you look at, you know, the city that I live in is about thirty to 40,000 people. And when you go to a town hall meeting here, or you go to a city council meeting, there might be 50 people there. Because those are the 50 people that are engaged in government. Most of the people don't care. Why? Because they don't think they really have any control over it. Now, at the city level, you really do. But you go to the state level, and there you have representative ratios of about 30,000 to 1 in most states. Some states, it's smaller. Some states, it's a little larger. California has awful representative uh, ratio. Theirs is in the hundred thousands to one. I think it's closer to like 300,000 to one in California. But you look at the general government in Washington, D.C., <clears throat> now you're talking about, you know, 700,000 to one. There's no representative government there. There's no local self-government there. But you have it at your city and state level. And, of course, if you just look at what the English considered to be a very large town, 500 people or less, now you're talking about local self-government. So this is why you can see these little towns could resist central control because the people themselves could decide to do it, and they're all armed. And so when the Vikings would smash in, you had maybe 300 people to resist the Vikings. And these men-at-arms would try to do so. 
Sometimes they would lose. Early on, they would often always lose. But Alfred figured out if we have these men trained and they're constantly ready to fight, well, you set yourself up in a situation where you can, you can defend yourselves. And of course, as you carry this idea of local self-government and then armed resistance to tyranny for just a couple of hundred years after the Doomsday Book, not even 200, you have the rebellion at Runnymede, and then, of course, you have the Magna Charta, where they force the king to, to understand that he is not above the law and also that you have rights as Englishmen. And this goes da back down to the local. That, of course, carries forward into the United States. People that came, of course, carries forward into Great Britain when you have the English Bill of Rights in 1688. If you compare the English Bill of Rights with the Declaration of Independence, they're very similar because the English Bill of Rights is an indictment of the king, and then it lists what rights the people have of England, the Englishmen have, that cannot be abridged by the king. Now, of course, you could say that's more similar to the Bill of Rights in our states and the, and the general government, but the form follows very much the Declaration of Independence. And so... That's codifying what we have as far as the rights of Englishmen. You carry that forward into the American colonies, and this is what they were fighting, fighting for, and they were fighting against the, the usurpation of those rights of Englishmen by the central authority, the parliament. The parliament was the one that was most egregiously violating those rights. And this is why they directly appealed to the king at one point to say, stop the parliament. The parliament is acting obnoxious. You can do it. We are your domain. And so if anyone can do it, it would be you, king. And, of course, George III refused to do so. But that idea that we have rights as Englishmen and that local self-government is supreme, that the central authority has very little control over what happens in the local, that comes out of Alfred the Great moving forward. Because we had small towns and small communities, and these things could govern themselves because the people had tremendous input and participation in those things. They could just refuse to abide by unconstitutional and unjust legislation. In Richmond, for example, the local courts, if the, if the colony of Richmond, uh, the colony of Virginia in Richmond passed a law that was in violation of local custom, the local courts just refused to enforce it. They refused to convict anyone of violating the law. And you had this all up and down the American colonies. In so many ways, it was very decentralized from the bottom up. You still had, I mean, people talked about their colonial legislatures, but even beyond that, the towns, the communities, they would just refuse to abide by the law. That, again, is nullification. This is the English political tradition. This is why it's so important to understand this, why it's so important to have sheriffs that understand this. You just don't enforce stupid, unconstitutional, and unjust laws. You don't enforce them. You let the people be. There are plenty of laws on the books that aren't enforced. We just don't recognize that or realize that. It all depends on law enforcement. So, uh, what we do is just ignore the ones that are oppressive. You know, legislators are going to legislate. They're going to pass laws. It's the job of the local law enforcement and also juries and judges to resist penalizing people for violating 
an unconstitutional, unjust, or immoral law. And that comes out of England. So as I began this podcast, I said, you know, it's very important that we understand, this is History 101, where this stuff comes from. It's fortunate that we don't have a Spanish or French political tradition. It's fortunate we have an English political tradition. Because that English political tradition has allowed for local self-government for, in our case, hundreds of years. But if you go back um, to uh, Alfred the Great for over a thousand years, we are living in the blessings of that. And there's no other place in the world that has that particular type of tradition long term. So when you go out and you start talking about government and politics with your local officials, talk to your sheriffs. Talk to your local law enforcement. Talk to lawyers and judges if you have them. I mean, I can do that here. I know there's lawyers and judges listening to this podcast. It's up to you. It's up to law enforcement and then the people that go out and actually prosecute and then make decisions in a court of law to understand. All you got to do is just not enforce it. If you sit on a jury and the law is unconstitutional, the law is unjust, don't enforce it. And that takes all the teeth out of whatever unconstitutional acts that government will pass. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClendon Show.